0: So I prepared a really good intro joke for this episode. (laughs) All right, let's hear it. Why did Ruby follow the two arrows at the hospital? Why? So that she could say, I'm here, Doc. (laughs) Wow. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sean. How are you this week?
1: Oh, I'm great. I finally shipped the the background jobs for crates.io. Cool! It's been in production for
0: um, more
1: than two weeks now, actually.
0: Uh-huh. And how's it performing? Any issues? Anything you've cleaned up? No issues at all. It's just made life much easier for
1: us. A, because I don't have to go manually clean up the index anymore, but also... <laughs> I used to have to think really, really hard about whether I wanted to change a config var because when the server booted, it would have to do a full clone of the index, and that would sometimes take more than thirty seconds, which would mean that we would time out booting up and we right. would drop a bunch of requests. Right, and so now we just boot instantly, like we should, and
0: it's great. I have universally found in in my sort of like operations life that putting more things in a background job is always a good idea. Like, yes. I mean, it's really funny. Mike Perham likes to call me Sidekick's number one piece of marketing material. And largely that is just because I'm like, put things in Sidekick. It will make your life easier. And so now that you right. have a like Sidekick alike, I guess you, you delayed sort Delayed of, job alike. Yeah, delayed job alike. I guess you uh, libraryified it, right? So it's actually like- uh, I'm, I'm
1: working on libraryifying it. Okay. It will probably have 0.1 out by the time this episode is released. Sweet. I decided to call the library Swirl. Because I was looking, I was looking for any any fun words that could uh, that were like diesel and background. Uh-huh. And apparently, if if a diesel engine uses indirect injection, which I have no clue what that is, but it sounds kind of backgroundy to me. <laughs> uh, the the chamber it uses for indirect injection is called a swirl chamber. So nice. hence the name.
0: So let me um, ask you, is your library built on top of Diesel? Is it built on top of raw? Because you're just using Postgres as like the backing store for your background jobs, right? You're not introducing yeah. like a Redis or some other like highfalutin queue database.
1: Correct. Yeah. So it's, it's built on top of Diesel because Diesel's is just the easiest way to access Postgres. Okay. Um, and I do want to have like an API for actually reading the background jobs that are in the database, which means that, you know, I need some interface to that and Diesel's what I use. So, and yeah, so it's built on Postgres. The goal of this is not to be the most performant background queue possible. It is to be a good enough background queue for people like me who already are running Postgres and don't want to be running another thing in addition to Postgres. It, it really is like whatever your data storage problem is, Postgres is probably good enough. This is just another case of that. I was actually really surprised. I I did some benchmarks on it. You know, like I said, performance isn't a huge goal of it, but I did want to, for the readme, be able to give folks an idea of what the its performance characteristics look like. And I was really surprised because I was expecting to be, like, an order of magnitude slower than Sidekick. But we're uh-huh. actually only about one and a half times slower, which is way better than I thought.
0: Here's... That's not, that's not like, so surprising to me because, like obviously postgres versus redis for those operations redis like smokes postgres but then like rust versus ruby for a bunch of the operate like sidekick is doing marshalling and unmarshalling and like a bunch of like if your job is large there's a bunch of compute sidekick has to do right and so right but this is all this is just for empty jobs okay i mean still like not so surprising like maybe that's a bit a bit faster than my intuition would have said but like I can just attribute that to Rust being faster than Ruby and kind of be okay with it and move on in my life. Sure. Yeah. Because I mean, Rust isn't like the cost here at all.
1: It's like 99% in IO. I'm not sure if that's also true of Sidekick when it's when it's queuing empty jobs. But uh, anyway, it... so that that was um, cool, though, because I, I was like, oh, and this thing probably won't scale to what we need if we ever want to throw like actual high volume background jobs at it. But uh-huh. it turns out it will do that just fine.
0: Yeah. Totally. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. So for the library release, I've just been polishing up the API, adding a bunch of things that need to be configurable. Change. I did some changes to like how the run all pending jobs function actually works. Uh-huh. So that if a job fails to start, we actually are able to learn about that error and return an error from run all pending jobs. And adding things like configurable timeouts. And then the big one that took me a while to decide on the API I wanted was code gen. Because the the job trait that you implement just kind of sucks to implement by yourself. Like, you have to define this uh, environment type, which, I mean, you'll always have to define it somewhere if you have a shared environment that you want to pass to all of your jobs. But, you you had to do it as an associate type. And then you had to define the string that was, like, the identifier for your job. And then the signature of perform is just one that I don't want you to necessarily have to write out like a trait would write it plus you have to define this struct that is only there to to serialize and deserialize your background job and then a function that y- you know creates that and queues enc- and the job in the database so it's just a lot of boilerplate when ultimately like your background job should just be a function right because that's like the only real quote unquote real code that you're writing is just that the perform function. So I ended up settling on this API where you just write a function. Uh If the first argument to the function is a reference, then that's your environment type. We assume that is the type that you want to be stored on your runner and have that passed to all of your jobs. And then all the other arguments are just the arguments to your job. And basically what this will do is it'll generate a struct for you, create a function with the same name that takes all of those arguments except for the environment and returns an instance of your background job so you can enqueue it. And then defines the the job implementation. And the big problem with that API is that you have to tell the runner all of the jobs that exist so that it can, you know, it gets the job type out of the database and then it needs to map that string to an actual type to deserialize into and call perform on. And one thing that's different about this API is before, since you were defining the struct that got serialized manually, the name of that struct was very clear and obvious, but with this new API, it's reasonable. Like it'll end up just being we create a module with the same name as your function, so it'll just be like your function name colon colon job, which uh-huh. is like reasonable, but still kind of funky, and you have to know to look up that up in the documentation. So then I I started to wonder, you know, what if I could make it so you never had to tell the runners about the jobs? Uh huh. There's a there's a crate out there called inventory, which uh, has a proc macro. I want to collect this struct. Uh And then other people can invoke that macro and say, here is an instance of that struct. But this is all compile time. And then at runtime, you could say, all right, give me all of the instances of those structs. So uh, what it does is it uses another crate called ctor, which basically defines a function and tells that to get linked in the ctors section of your binary. So basically, it just creates a function that gets run before main. Okay. What does CTOR stand for? Constructors. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It's used for, for C++ constructors. Okay. What it's, basically, static C++ variables Sing- that uh, couldn't be inlined. Like singletons, for example. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Gotcha. But yeah, so basically, we have this function that runs before main, and then puts all of these in a mutable static linked list. And so the thing that we actually store, we so we have a macro basically that takes the name of a job and will construct the V table of that job. And then, you know, just stick that in this linked list. And then when we're constructing the runner, we just look through the, uh, all of these entries for all of the jobs that have the env- uh, correct environment type. Which we can never like actually get the type back. We only have the type ID because you know this is at runtime, so types don't exist anymore. But it's enough for us to, when we know the actual type, say, did this vtable originally have the correct type? So we grab all the jobs that have the right environment type, and then basically turn that vtable back into an actual thing that can be used to deserialize and run jobs. And then you still have to tell the runner. Technically, you have to tell the runner that the job exists because something has to invoke this macro. But the big difference is instead of you tell the runner that the job exists when you construct the runner, you tell it that the job exists when you define the job. And if it's happening when you define the job, we can just generate that for you since we're generating
0: the job anyway. Right. And so you en- you end up with like all the jobs are registered for you at runtime through a compile time macro. So the user doesn't have to do anywhere near as much work is sort of like the practical upshot of this. Exactly, yeah. And it's an API that
1: like doesn't you know, the so the alternative would have been either I go I went with an API where you still defined the struct manually. Uh-huh. Or I went with an API where you you know you just registered the jobs with the runner like you did before, but I just document, yeah, and when you use this macro, it's that that function colon colon job. That's the thing you register. But both of those are still defining your own struct manually just felt like too much boilerplate to me. And the documenting, yeah, you, you register function name colon colon job
0: just felt like it was leaking
1: its internals way too much.
0: Uh, is it still so. possible for a user to define their own struct if they want like more control, or like is there yes. literally okay? So there, there, this is a thing a user can do if they need to.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I mean, I don't want you to have to care about the internals of this right. macro, but I am going to document it well so that uh, and and make it very clear, like if you don't want to use this macro. You don't have to. And I'll also make it so that you can register jobs with the runner directly. So if you don't want to use the
0: life before main linker hacks, you also don't have to. But that's cool. You know. That's really cool. Nice. And so you're expecting to get a 0.1 hopefully by the time this podcast is out. So the folks at home can check out Swirl. Yeah. Yeah. The repo is also public.
1: So even if 0.1 isn't out by then, you can still go look at the state of everything. It's it's just sgriff slash Swirl. Cool. But yeah, it's almost there. I basically just need to finish cleaning up a few things, add like customizable error handling. I also want to make it so that if your job says it takes a database connection, like if you just have an argument that is a, a reference to a database connection, we just give that to you from the runner's connection pool rather than you having to stick the connection pool on your environment.
0: Right, because you can infer that you are a Postgres-based job system, a user wants a Postgres connection, like you have some connections to spare, like job, here you go, here's a connection. Exactly. And very specifically,
1: I want to do that, yes, because we the, the size that you want your connection pool to be is determined based on the number of worker threads that the job runner has. Mm. Like the most reasonable default would be thread pool size times two right because we need we need one connection to actually like get the job from the
0: database and then a second connection to give to the job right and and you and I have talked in the past about how the jobs definitely want separate connections for all sorts of reasons yes. yeah yep the
1: only interesting thing here and in fact this is already true for crates iO is not not that we're not that we're ever running jobs in parallel right now but the interesting thing is like making sure stuff works okay. If your connection pool size is smaller than 2x the worker size. And in fact, one of the really interesting cases, and this is why I want to share the pool between the runner and the jobs, is if the pool size is set to exactly the number of worker threads and say, like, only half your jobs require a database connection. So it can basically dynamically scale up or down the number of jobs it's running in parallel if it's running let's say you have four cores so if it's running two jobs that require database connection it'll only run two jobs uh, concurrently but if there are four jobs that don't require database connection you can run all four of them concurrently or three that don't require a connection or two that don't require connection and one that does sure basically you know the by sharing the pool like this can scale dynamically if if only some of your jobs require a database connection which is neat
0: yeah, that's an interesting approach. I mean, my feeling there is that, like, database connections are cheap and, like, pooling- Not that- for Postgres. Really? Yeah. Oh. TIL database connections aren't cheap. I've I've had more than a thousand concurrent connections on a single Postgres instance with no issues whatsoever. You were probably going through PG Bouncer then, which is a connection
1: pool. Okay, possibly. Uh, no idea. And will sometimes lie to you about the number of, ac- of connections <laughs> it actually has open. Okay, I do know. So for example, crates.io, we know that we're going to have to like the number of available database connections is our main bottleneck. And that'll be the thing that we have to scale. But like on Heroku Postgres, the highest non enterprise tier that you can get only sports 500 concurrent connections.
0: That's really interesting. So in the infrastructure setup I was using, it was just a Postgres on a single ginormous digital ocean node, and we had that connection count set really, really high, and there didn't seem to be any ill effects, and things were connecting directly, but whatever. Yeah, they mostly just use a lot of memory. Ah, uh, OK. You, you can definitely set it higher than 500, like, if you
1: have full control over the server that you're on. But 500 yeah. is a pretty common max for managed uh, instances of Postgres.
0: Right. So I, I was, yeah, I was just saying that, like, in actuality, right, this was a node with, I think, 64, 128 gigs of RAM. And so we could just jank that connection count as high as we wanted. And there was literally no problem whatsoever. Which well, is- the cost
1: you have there, right, is the more RAM that you're using for concurrent connections, the less RAM that can be used for your query cache.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, there was no actual performance issue with this database server, but right. like this was not also like super heavy, crazy production traffic necessities. Cool. Anything else on Swell? I did have one really
1: funny thing that had happened when we were trying to deploy it to production. I was doing some testing and staging and had accidentally set the number of jobs in the connection pool too small. Uh-huh. Oh, and I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. Basically, we needed... Even more connections back then because the way run all pending jobs worked was like got a count of all of the available jobs and then just in a loop tried to spawn a new thread and ran them. So we needed the additional connection to get that count and the connection would be released before the last job ran, but our our connection pool size was set to one. (laughs) And so the very first time it tried to run a job would happen before the connection got released back to the pool and so it would just not be able to get the job out of the pool at all because it wouldn't be able to get the connection to even try. The way we had this set up, we were, so we're using R2D2, which... What is R2D2? That's a connection pooling library. Oh, okay. And errors in Rust can influence both debug and display. Debug being like the actual structure of the error and display being the message that you want. The thing is, all of the like, this shouldn't error ever functions in um, <laughs> Rust like, unwrap or expect, show the debug output, not the display output. So the, the message for R2D2Can, uh, when it fails to get a connection from the pool, it will return this this error struct, which will have an option of an internal error. And the internal error will be, like, the last time, if, if, if the last time we tried to cr- add a new connection to the pool, that errored, it'll be whatever that error was because the the reason you, you failed to get a connection from the pool might be that your pool is too small or overloaded or it might be that that it just can't establish new connections because the database is down so you want to have that information uh-huh. and the display output will say failed to get a connection from the pool and if there was that internal error it'll be like colon whatever that internal error is the debug output though is just error and then open parens the option of that internal error and there was no internal error so it just the whole thing just when when we tried to boot it if a job, took greater than one second because that's how long we were waiting after running all jobs to look for new ones because we're low volume and we don't want to put the additional load on the database. So if the job was still running the next time it tried to get that count, it would just crash and it would say, could not start running jobs, error none. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So that was fun to like just look at and be like, what is actually happening here? (laughs)
0: Sweet. But yeah.
1: <laughs> once I figured out my DERP, I'd set the connection pool size smaller than it needed to be. Everything looked good in staging and the the delay between jobs running and uh, or jobs getting queued and jobs running is shorter than I had expected to. I didn't get to go with like the original really, really simple async implementation that I wanted, which was just we actually do a full clone of the index into a temp directory every time. Uh huh. Because that meant the delay was like two or three minutes. So now we just keep the one known checkout location, wrap that in a mutex, and just do a git fetch and git reset hard at the beginning of every job instead. The longest delay between you try to publish or yank a crate and the index gets updated that I've seen is three seconds. And for most folks, it'll be about one second. That's cool. Which is pretty good, because it means that if you tried to run cargo build on something that depended on this new thing you just published before the index gets updated the delay is short enough that it'll probably be there if you just run cargo build again sure yeah this basically only only now becomes a noticeable problem for people who are like in a shell script trying to publish a ton of crates that all depend on each other really really fast
0: yeah like publish and then build automation against the publish yeah like that could be a problem but otherwise that seems pretty cool
1: yeah but if and if that's a problem for folks like adding sleep one should be more than enough (laughs) (laughs) or just like a retry
0: should also be more than enough i mean you could even you could even add an internal like once like one cycle or two cycle retry to the cargo client and that would also solve your problem right yes yeah some folks have asked for like a cargo
1: publish hyphen hyphen sync flag where cargo would you know publish it and then continuously ping the index to find out until it's been updated which um could work
0: my feeling is that you should probably put that in the retrieve time and not in the uh published time but whatever either way that's something that that's cargo's
1: problem we're definitely not adding like a sync option back to craze io because having this be async has made right.
0: life just so much simpler yep I'm on team async. All the things uh, for sure. Cool. Okay, I want to talk to you about here docs. Okay, here docs were a mistake. So I finally implemented like fully correct here doc formatting in Firmt, but the way that I had to do it is like a super mega egregious hack around like. RubyFMT's assumptions about how the Ruby programming language is structured. So, the the basic assumption RubyFMT makes is that like all of the constructs in the syntax tree are sequential in the file, right? Which, <laughs> so so like so like if something occurs late later and deeper in the syntax tree, that should mean that it is further to the right or further down in the file, right? Yeah. Do you think that's like a reasonable assumption for like some kind of auto formatting program to make? Yeah, or any
1: parser of any programming language, I would hope.
0: So here docs violate this assumption. So the simplest possible here doc, right, is like arrow arrow EOD, like new line, some text, new line, and then EOD, right? And that that one will parse as a string literal. Uh, that tells you it's a here doc well you have to hack the ruby parser to get it to tell you it's a here doc but that's a whole different story and then you can just serialize that out right yeah simple enough however you can interpolate within a here doc and of course that means you can interpolate here docs within a here doc yep so (laughs) you can like quite happily go arrow arrow like eod something hash curly arrow 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 eom and then close the curly, then you can have the rest of the D content and then say EOD, (laughs) and then the rest of the B content and then say, or the M content and then say EOM, right? And so this violates that assumption that syntax constructs show up at the same time because the entire contents of the EOM here doc will show up in the parser node within the hash curly parser node in the syntax tree. Right. This is a problem uh, <laughs> right, right like this is this is an actual huge problem for ruby phone. and so fortunately i kind of already had some of the constructs in my serializer that i needed to do this so it already implements original source line detection because i need that to know where to dump comment blocks right so like right f- fortunately i already had that piece so then i basically was like okay what i need is the ability to stick the contents of a here doc in like a separate place to where the syntax tree node for the here doc shows up and then shove it like at the right construct as the line ends or like as a string embed expression closes. And so basically what RubyFoampt does is every time a here doc is encountered, it creates a new version of its, like, an empty clone of its parser state, which is basically, parser state is a really bad name for this, it's more like serializer state, it's like the state of the serializer alongside the syntax tree that it's walking. Then it Mm -hmm. runs the entire serializer along that construct, and if it encounters more here docs, it then, like, recurses, instantiating more new versions of the serializer state object, right? And then, Mm -hmm. when it encounters constructs, that could possibly have here doc contents after them. So, like, a closing curly, a line break, like, you know, things. Then it dumps, like, the next here doc in in, like, its stack from these, like, nested recursive parser states out. And then it just goes all the way back down through this. And, like, that eventually works. But, like, I'm, like very upset about how (laughs) about how this works because like the the problem is is that like parse.y is like this is a string literal here's a string literal and i'm like (laughs) i'm like you're not wrong it's just that that's not where that string literal actually was and so like ruby now successfully formats like multiple here docs on the same line here docs embedded inside them (laughs) like arrow, arrow, <laughs> tilde, hit, like, like I've done it. I've solved here docs, but it wasn't fun. And heredocs were a mistake. Python's like just triple quotes means multi-line is a much better solution to this problem. But you can also just have a multi-line string literal in Ruby without heredocs, Can't you? No. Oh, a double quote cannot be a multi-line string literal. Oh, which is like I didn't I, I thought it couldn't Ruby, which is why people often do the like string and cat with the backslash, you know, the backslashes at the end of line. And then right. It, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's well, the backslashes at the end of line also put that that makes it a single line string. Well, right. But then people very commonly like stick a new line on the end of their like they do double quotes ending with a new line and then a backslash and then like the next line of text. <laughs> right yeah right yeah i don't that is frequently more convenient than using here docs for the aforementioned reasons so like if i could and i very seriously considered doing this i would make ruby just transform all here docs into like string and cat blocks but i decided that would make me the most hated person in ruby and no one would use my auto formatter sorry double quote strings can't have new lines in them You mean like a slash N or like a literal new line? No, like an actual literal new line. Huh. Okay. That was not true at some older version of Ruby and is true now, I guess. Okay. Because like, I know you used to not be able to. I wonder when exactly that got implemented. If I had to guess, I'd say 1.9, but... Possible. Anyway, <sighs> this is my life now. I n- I now know far more about Ruby formatting than I ever wanted to know. The other one that I learned about this week is block local variables, which I don't know if you've ever used them. But in the like pipes section, when you're defining a block, you can say like a comma b comma, and then if you say semicolon c, that will define a variable within that block called c. That if you write to it uh the like if there's a c in the outer scope that c will not get shadowed but even though that's in the argument section you can't bind it when you invoke that block like there's no way to bind it it doesn't affect the arity of the block so it goes in like the argument section but it isn't an argument it's a block local variable and when i found out about this i was extremely mad like yeah, why would we have that?
1: If we don't have the same construct first say like anything else that creates a new lexical scope, like if
0: well, I don't know, but it's 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 right there in pars.y and RubyFumpt. That's terrible. <laughs> RubyFumpt will support it soon.
1: Yeah. I think RubyFumpt should just like error and say, don't use this because it's terrible.
0: Just use a new <laughs> variable name that doesn't shadow an outer variable. Uh no. Like, I can't claim to be building a Ruby auto formatter that doesn't let like errors on valid Ruby syntax. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Like, it's really funny. I've been discovering all of this stuff as I get like deeper and deeper into how like Ruby syntax actually works. And I'm just like, why does anyone use this programming language? <laughs> like <laughs> It, the thing is the core of ruby is actually really nice and then you just find all of these edge cases in the parser and i'm just like what what well, i want to i really want to sit down with matt's and be like why why did you do this i love you matt right but anyway so ruby Fompt now officially went also went 0.1 which means it can run over the entirety of rspec and not break a single test, which is really cool. Like, that's really cool. I'm barreling towards a 0.2, which is when RubyFirmed auto-formats itself... I don't get angry about any of the styling decisions that it has made, (laughs) which to me is like a sufficiently far true north for the next iteration. And then I'm going to be like, hey, people, this is kind of now ready for you to actually try it in your editors. Please try it in your editors. Like, it's really funny. People are like, I'm putting it in my editor and it's doing all of these things I don't like. And I'm like, I agree with you. It's doing a lot of things that I also don't like. Like right now, I would say it's about as close to a no special cases or it was, I've started adding special cases. It's about as close to a no special cases like Ruby auto formatter as you could possibly imagine. Soon, there will be lots of special cases. Like, for example, making blocks that only have one statement within them, single line, that actually also requires setting up a phantom serializer and firing it. Because if the, uh, a construct is multi-line then you probably want your block to be multi-line but if you're in a construct is single line then you only want it to be single line and the only way to determine that is to like actually serialize it and see what comes out the other side and then decide what to do right, right? and so there's a lot of this like double pass serialization that's probably going to have to be done i will say this has had absolutely no performance impact whatsoever on average on ruby 2.6 it takes 32 milliseconds to run the first 10 milliseconds of that is booting ruby and the next like 16 or so is actually parsing the like ginormous source code listing and so like ruby is blazingly fast that objective i'm like so pleased to have met and it turns out (laughs) it turns out that like almost none of my implementation decisions affect runtime at all which is really nice i'm like i can basically do anything here because the overwhelming cost of the run is ruby boot time and ruby parser time yeah that's Cool. cool also Ruby 2.6 produces almost entirely different S expressions in a bunch of really core places to all the earlier Rubies. And as far as I can tell, it's not because it's got different syntax in a bunch of places. It's because they implemented the like new parser API in Ruby 2.6. And they like, I think they went in and did some refactoring. And as a side effect of that, like it's broken or not broken. It's changed the formats that come out of the parser which is also like an interesting piece of trivia because like you would have expected that to be fairly stable within ruby minor versions but uh (laughs) turns out not to be the case cool well i look forward to trying it out yeah i mean it's i would still say it's not ready for people to put in their editors yet but it's like it's a hell of a lot closer than it was say like two yak episodes ago which is you know like five months of time but yeah or like i guess two months of time but it's a lot closer than it was say a few months ago yeah do you want to wrap up yeah let's wrap
1: cool show notes for this episode can be found at yakshavefm slash 14 as always ratings and reviews on itunes are appreciated If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can email us at hosts at yakshave.fm, tweet us at underscore yakshave, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks
0: for listening to the Yakshave, and we'll see you next time.